I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another fabulous day in the Lord's neighborhood and to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I'm Page, your caffeine-imbued host. And here, my friends, is my coffee. Ah, in the beginning, coffee. Mm. And lo, it was very good. Today we're going to be going into Mark chapter 8. We're moving right along. Jesus right now is ministering in a Gentile population. Uh, and again, I you know, it's funny. I was just thinking yesterday about how odd it is that uh, that I never saw this before. But, and like I said, I've always known that there's always been a seat at God's table for Gentiles. And I, I know that in, in my mind's eye, the purpose of the Jewish nation Israel was to be a caretaker of God's words and his ways and to bring this light, shine this light out to the nations and make him available to all the nations. In fact, that's happened through Jesus. Um, And so I get all that, but never considered the fact that he would go, that he actually went into a Gentile region and did all the things that he had done when he was among his own people of Israel. So he's still there right now. All right, he's still in this Gentile region. And uh, so let's just get started. Chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so, and they had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. And afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, before I go on, I know this sounds an awful lot like when he fed the 5,000, but these are two separate incidents. That one was over there amongst the Jewish contingent. And he does the same thing, basically, over here amongst the Gentiles. We're going to see later on that Jesus himself refers to these as two separate incidents. So this isn't Peter confusing things. The Pharisees came 
and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Oh, you know, oh, he sighed, <laughs> Jesus did what I just did. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. You know, he he's made the lame to walk. He's made the blind to see. They don't contest the fact that he does miracles. Remember the thing with the the incident with the man with the withered hand of the tabernacle in the uh, synagogue? They didn't ask themselves, I wonder if he can heal him. No, they knew he could heal. They just want to know if he was going to heal him on the Sabbath or not. So they weren't they didn't contest that Jesus was doing miraculous things. But he wasn't he was doing messianic type things. Like when he healed lepers, that's a me- that's a messianic thing. In Jewish literature and Jewish uh, medical practices, there was no uh, procedure for treating someone with leprosy. They felt that leprosy was a was a judgment from God for sin in your life. And when that sin was dealt with, God would remove leprosy. Only God gives leprosy. Only God can remove leprosy. And so they did not treat lepers because they did not want to, in their mind's eye, they did not want to interfere with the working of God's judgment in a person's life. So when Jesus comes along, and heals a leper, and heals lepers. He is, in essence, telling them who he is. According to their own belief, only God can heal leprosy. Jesus heals a leper. He's telling them who he is. And yet, here are these Pharisees again. Give us a sign. From heaven. They weren't asking out of uh, out of belief. They were asking. They were being belligerent. They would go back home and say, we asked him to give us a sign and he wouldn't. He couldn't. You know, they're they're just building a case against him for being a fraud. So anyway, that's what's happening there. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf. They added them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them, because his mind is still on what just happened. Be careful, he said. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. (laughs) They thought he was talking about bread. Aware of the discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? Twelve, they said. And when I broke the seven loaves for this 4,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? Seven. He says, do you still not understand? He's pointing them to the miracles that he did. The power that he wielded. The proof that he was the son of man. The son of God. Messiah, the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod, that's, you know, yeast is that little thing that makes the the dough rise, right? A little bit of yeast can infect 
or permeate through an entire batch of dough. The yeast that the Pharisees were bringing to this discussion was their refusal to believe the proof that was in front of them of who Jesus was. The lame walk, the blind see, the lepers are healed. He feeds 5,000, then he feeds 4,000. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen, you know, they've, they've seen him demonstrate his power again and again and again. The yeast of the Pharisees and Herod would, would plant doubt that this isn't enough, that you need more. You know, you always want more. People who don't believe, let me rephrase that. People who will not believe, who will not believe, always want more evidence. Dear friend of mine, uh, atheist, he did not believe in Jesus. But you could not say he would not believe. And here's what I mean when I say that. He was an atheist by conviction. He had studied. He had pursued. And at that point in his life when I met him, he had found no reason to believe that there was a God. Let alone that Jesus would be the Son of God. He just hadn't believed that. Fast forward a couple years later. Evidence came in within his uh, periphery. And he, he continued to seek. And he came to believe that there was a God and that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He was no longer a believer. Now, that was a case of someone who did not believe, but didn't make an active dis- decision to ignore evidence, to ignore what was under their eyes, to ignore what, was, what he heard and what he saw. And he's a believer on this day. The yeast of the Pharisees and Herod is that thing that would infect somebody to take them to the point where they just quit considering. Quit looking. I've seen it happen to people who walked, who, who uh, by all tense, uh, by all uh, appearances, were walking with God. But they reached a point in their life, something happened where all of a sudden they just, it wasn't worth believing anymore and they walked away. Now, that's another subject for another time. But in this context, the yeast of the Pharisees is that bit of self-doubt of a critical spirit that refuses to be satisfied with what is in front of them. Do you still not see? Do you have eyes to but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they said 12. I broke seven loaves. How many baskets did you pick up? Seven. He says, do you still not understand? I've demonstrated who I am. I'm not talking about bread. I'm telling you to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? Now, before you get all grossed out, that was actually a 
legitimate medical procedure in those days. Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Now, giving sight to the blind was another indication that Jesus was doing what God had promised to do when he came to bring salvation. In Isaiah, we read, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. These are signs of Messiah. This is what Messiah will do. Now, this next thing is a really important passage. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Now, there's a more complete uh, version of this discussion in Matthew's gospel. I'm going to read that here. And it plays, I believe, a very important part in what's going to come up next. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is incredible praise showered upon Peter from Jesus. Keep that in mind with what happens next. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke very plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. All right. Uh, can you imagine having the nerve to take the person you just called Messiah, the Son of God, and to pull him aside and rebuke him like you were his elder? like you were his father or his uncle or something. That's what Peter's doing here. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. In that word rebuke means he's telling Jesus, you got it all wrong. You're being very wrong. This isn't true. This is what Peter was doing here. Now, why would Peter dare to do that. I think part of it's because he got a big head because of what Jesus said to him previously up here. Blessed are you, Simon, summon Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you're Peter, this rock, etc., etc., etc. Peter received high praise. And I just can't get away from the feeling that he just elevated himself to a point of self-importance that he was so smart that he could actually dare to rebuke the Son of God, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of David, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He, he dared to rebuke 
Jesus. Now, this hits home to me in this regard. As we grow in our walk with Christ, as we move through the years, you learn, you experience, you see. People start to see you as wise. I, I had a, a, a student of mine the other day just thank me for my wisdom when I was counseling her on, on different area, different things about what she had coming up in her life. And I just shared my life experiences with her. Um, I have... I have decided, I've taken on the methodology that my father used in giving advice. Don't. He never once gave me advice. But he would always ask a question that would draw the answer out of me, and I'd end up answering my own question and taking my own advice. So that's viewed as wisdom, and that was viewed as wisdom by this young lady when I talked with her the other day. And as you get older and walk, the longer you walk with God, the wiser you get and the more profound your words sometimes are. Uh, sometimes I say things and I'm inside I'm going, I hope somebody's taking notes because that sounded really smart. Yet for all of that, we have to maintain a humility that realizes that no matter how smart we get on this planet, no matter how much wisdom we accrue, no matter how wise the people around us deem us to be, all our wisdom, all our knowledge is but a single grain of sand compared to all that there is to know about our God and his ways. I've noticed also that as uh, many people grow older and walk in Christ, the longer they, they do that, that, sometimes they end up with a pet, uh, oh, a pet opinion, a pet, theological stand, you know, a pet thing that they're very passionate about that they think they've got the inside track on. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory fashion. Um, everybody's life has a purpose and a direction that God's taking them. And many times in that, in the process of following after that and chasing after, chasing after God and that purpose and that, that vision and everything, we tend to think that we've got something very, very, very important that the world needs to hear. And it's something other than the message of the kingdom of God is near. It's usually just something, uh, a pet theological perspective, a pet, uh, um, I almost said attitude, a pet uh, opinion about things. It all happens. It happens to everybody. It happens to me. Um, and I think we have to take a piece of advice from what's happening in this passage with Peter. Don't be Peter. Don't think that you are so knowledgeable, so wise, that you can actually give advice to God. One of the things in the uh, 70s, when I, when I became a Christian, um, my background was uh, in the Pentecostal world at that time. And there were several Pentecostal Bible teachers, um, some of which were starting to preach and teach that we could order angels around and that uh, there's this thing going on called the prosperity teaching where you, your spirituality and your 
um, relationship with God ensured that you could be healthy and wealthy, right? And that uh, wealth coming in was proof of God's blessing, all that kind of stuff. And there was one uh, couple, I, I won't mention their names, but there was one couple who believed that you could actually order angels around because there's one verse in the Bible that says they're ministering spirits sent to minister to us. And so I thought they took, that means they're, they're our servants. And so in their prayers, they would tell angels what to do. And they believed that the promises of God, they took the thing where the promises of God, which are very solid, rock solid, and are purely to be believed. But when they pray, they pray as if they were ordering God to do something because his word said that he would. And it, it their prayers took on the tenor of a, someone ordering a servant around. And I always felt uncomfortable about that. God is not our servant. He is not to be ordered around. Don't pull a Peter and try to rebuke God. Don't pull a Peter and try to uh, tell God what to do. That's what happened here. And what was Jesus' response? This had to have hurt. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Now, he had just got done telling him, you've heard the deepest, power, most powerful truth from God that I'm the Messiah. Well done, Peter. Then he looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, he's predicting what kind of death he's going to have. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. See, there are there are those who are more concerned about fitting into and pleasing their own adulterous and sinful generation than they are about following and pleasing Christ. That person will have no part in Christ's kingdom. All right. I had, uh, I've had moments in my life when I've been really disappointed in the way my life has gone. I'm a musician and Musicians exist for an audience. That just seems to be part of the musical DNA. And what we, I, I, at several times in my life, I've been close, semi-close, I guess, to a record deal as a musician, and it's all fallen through. And um, I remember talking with my son about it once. Now, my son, Matt, I hope everybody out there can have a child that throws truth bombs like this around. But he told me, he says, Dad, why are you chasing after something that five years after you're dead, nobody will ever remember? He said, there's no lasting legacy in a record deal. And he said, "Choose. you should choose to follow God and do what makes him happy today and not worry about that other thing. And it led me down a trail of thinking to where 
I thought, I think I would rather die with nobody in the world knowing I ever lived, totally anonymous, and to hear God's words, well done, good and faithful servant, than to die with the world shouting my name in praise and adulation and stand before the judgment seat of God and hear him say, depart from me, you wicked, to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I never knew you. I'd rather be anonymous with God, anonymous with man, and well-known by God than the other way around. Mm. There's a lot of good stuff in this chapter. It's starting to wind up. Jesus is uh, going to be making his way towards the cross throughout this gospel, and the story starts taking up some speed. So that's enough for today. Thank you for listening. Those of you that are listening, just know that, again, this devotional is for me, not for you. I'm thinking with my mouth open. This is how I process things. And if it benefits you at all, I'm totally blessed. But know this, the word of God is a living thing. It's sharp, like a two-edged sword. And it will accomplish the purpose that it's sent out to accomplish. The word in your life will change your life. However you get into the Bible, get into the Bible. This is really working well for me, this devotional approach. It's probably not really deep theologically. It's probably not deep in a lot of ways, but for me, it's just right. God, I can testify that God has changed my life this last two years by doing this. So, with that in mind, God's blessings to you. Have a great day. This is Paige. Here's my coffee. Mm. I am out of here. Bye-bye. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. You need to think for yourself.